So we're going to be continuing in our uh, walk through the book of Daniel today. Um, you can keep your Bibles right where they should be or where Paul just read. We're going to be looking at Daniel 7, 13 through 14. That will be our text for today. Just a quick catch up here. Two Sundays ago, we examined the first part of Daniel's vision here in chapter 7, where four beasts arose from the sea. Each beast represents an earthly kingdom. And the fourth one, which was the largest and most powerful of all, represents basically the last earthly kingdom. Kind of looked like Rome, but it's kind of far beyond that. So, And then last Sunday, so that was two Sundays ago, last Sunday we looked at the second part of Daniel's vision where the Ancient of Days, the eternal God, uh, sat on his throne and judged these beasts, or nations, if you will, kingdoms, and removed their power remove their dominion, that's control, influence, and destroyed the fourth beast along with its king, which is referred to in the previous section as the little horn, and we know him as Antichrist. He's the last earthly king, if you will. So we saw that image of the Ancient of Days judging those kingdoms and bringing them all to an end. This morning, we're going to look at the third part of Daniel's vision, Uh, or what he saw next in that vision. And I have entitled uh, this message, The Son of Man. Uh, Let's pray uh, before we actually get to work. Father, we just humbly acknowledge your presence, your sovereignty, your power. You are the ancient of days. You are the eternal God. As Mike said earlier, you have no beginning, you have no end. And we can't even get our minds around that simple doctrine that you're eternal. Uh, It's a simple doctrine to express. It's an impossible doctrine to grasp. Um, But that's who you are. And we ask, Father, that you would be merciful to us today by sending the Holy Spirit here to us to uh, reveal, unmask, and unpack the truth. Uh, Lord, we long to be made more like Jesus. We long to be encouraged and equipped better for this life and how to glorify you in all things. And so we ask that you would work those things out in us today. Perform that. Really, it's a miracle of your grace. We can't get ourselves from point A to point B. I've been doing, trying to do that my whole life, and I never get past anything. I just don't get anywhere. And so we know and acknowledge that, that you're the one. So we ask you to move in power and be glorified in this place. Reveal to us what it is that you want revealed to us. Speak to us now. We humble ourselves and sit at your feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick it up at verse 13. We left off at verse 12 last week. Verse 13, I'll read it. And since we have new people here, uh, the way that we do this is we just read the verse and then dissect it and break it down and just kind of keep moving through the verses. Um, We like to teach in an expository fashion at this church. We just open a book and preach through a book. So that's the way we roll. Let's look at 13 together. It says, and I'll be reading from the ESV, it says, I saw in the night visions, so he's still in this vision mode here, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
Uh, I did my very best to find an image on Google that comes nowhere near what this scene might have looked like. Um, but you kind of have the Ancient of Days over there on his throne, then you have the Son of Man being presented, you have the witnesses, so I guess it gives us some sort of visual aid. Uh, but I'm sure that, I'm not even sure about it, I know for no doubt that this scene, the grandeur and everything was much more amplified. This must have been incredible what Daniel saw here. So, Daniel, as we see, continues to unpack his vision. Now, what I want to do is I want to analyze uh, just the phrasing in this verse as we normally do, and, and I want to begin with the clouds of heaven, this awesome little phrase here. When I read this, I was immediately reminded of what Jesus, now this is much later on in history, but Jesus actually told the high priest Caiaphas during his trial. Caiaphas was grilling him on his true identity. Uh, he was working to try to get him to, to confess that he is God because that would have been the ultimate form of blasphemy, thus leading to Jesus' death. And if you know anything about the Gospels and the life of Jesus during his ministry, the religious leaders were doing all they could to dispose of him. So he was grilling him on, basically, are you the Son of God? Are you God? He kept grilling him over and over. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Are you God? And Jesus replied to him and said, I am, taking that title for God out of the Old Testament. And he said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, capital P, and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Mark 14, 61 through 62. That's what came to mind when I, when I read this about these clouds and coming with the clouds. I was reminded of what Jesus actually said to the high priest. The clouds of heaven are therefore associated with the return of Christ. Even the reference in Daniel here is pointing to that. Revelation 1.7 corroborates uh, the apostle John wrote, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, speaking of Jesus, the Son of Man, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all, all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, let's just ponder the clouds themselves. We must understand that these aren't just any clouds. When we first read that, we're thinking of the puffy white clouds. They look like big cotton balls in the sky. We're thinking of maybe the dark and dreary gray rain clouds that we've been seeing over the last week or so. Uh, the, the reference here is not to normal, regular, everyday clouds. Uh, when we see clouds mentioned in association with, uh, or in Daniel, or we see them in the New Testament, they're always associated with what's called Shekinah glory, or the Shekinah glory cloud, okay? In Scripture, the Shekinah glory cloud, if, if you want to call it that, it symbolizes the physical presence of the invisible God. And, and the Old Testament's littered with examples of this, you know, God accompanied his people during the exodus in the form of a cloud. It, it, the cloud is the Shekinah glory cloud. It represents the presence of God. And, and what we're seeing here, according to Daniel and according to Revelation, according to Jesus' own testimony, when Jesus appears, when he comes for the second time, we call it the second advent, he will come in Shekinah glory. He will be 
encapsulated, if you will, or riding on that glory cloud. How many of you are familiar with the transfiguration? You remember how Jesus took a few disciples up on a mountaintop and he was transfigured before them? It says the face of Christ shone like the sun. We, I think we read the text last week. His clothes became white as light. And there was a cloud that enveloped the top of the mountain. Well, that, again, wasn't a rain cloud or a puffy cotton cloud. That was the Shekinah glory cloud. So the transfiguration gives us um, a picture of what the return of Christ or the, yeah, the transfiguration does. It gives us an, a picture of what the return of Christ will actually be like. And so does Daniel 7 right here. So does that passage in Revelation. So does the passage that I cited from Mark 14. So... This son of man here, this person, comes on this cloud. He comes on this cloud. It's such an amazing thing. The clouds of heaven, the Shekinah glory cloud, if you want to call it that. That's the first phrase. Second phrase, and then it says, there came one like the son of man. So in Daniel's vision so far, he has seen beasts and he has seen horns and a little horn, and he has seen gobs and gobs and gobs of angels. He has seen the Ancient of Days. All of these things he has seen in his vision. And now he sees for the first time what appears to be a person. Obviously, the beasts didn't represent a person. None of them did. The first one did kind of because it began to walk upright, but it really didn't look like a person. Um, I doubt very seriously that the Ancient of Days looked like he does on that image where it's like an old man sitting in a wheelchair holding a wand. That's like Harry Potter right there. So, um, so that's not, I don't think, what he looked like there. The beast didn't look like a man. Um, the angels may have, I guess, to a degree. I don't know. I've never seen an angel. I probably would not know what to do if I did. But this is the, he says, one like a son of man. So what he's saying is, I saw a person. I saw one like a person, one like a man. The title, Son of Man, was often applied to the prophet Ezekiel. How many of you have read the book of Ezekiel? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing, pretty amazing book. Uh, that particular phrase or title, the Son of Man, appears 93 times in the book that bears that prophet's name. God called Ezekiel, son of man, to remind him of his humanity and lowliness and frailty. Uh, and, and the reason why is because Ezekiel was privileged uh, from God and by God to enjoy, you know, visions of angels and of God himself and to keep him humble because I'm telling you, I know how I am. If I received these sorts of visions from God, I would probably become pretty prideful and Nah, 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 nah. Look at what I've seen. You know, go around acting like a fool. And so to safeguard Ezekiel from becoming prideful, he keeps referring to him as a mere human, as the son of man. So that keeps him humble. And, and a similar thing happened to the apostle Paul. He was also privileged uh, to receive revelations from God, right? He wrote, you know, man alive, you know, basically half of the New Testament and in order for God to keep him from becoming puffed up, God gave him not a title to remind him of his humanity, but what? A thorn in his side, right? 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Son of man, that title is also applied to Daniel, the prophet who authored this letter that we're studying in Daniel 8, 17. So it can mean human being, frail, 
humility, those sorts of things. It's associated with human and human weakness, if you want to put it that way. Son of man is also used in reference to Messiah in Scripture, or the Messiah. Jesus applied the title to himself. He called himself the Son of Man. In fact, that was his favorite self-title. It appears 82 times in the Gospels, almost as many times in the four Gospels as it appears in Ezekiel. So Jesus really liked to refer to himself as the Son of Man. He actually borrowed the title from Daniel and from Ezekiel in those passages where we see it. When applied to Jesus, it not only refers to his humanity or lowliness and humiliation, but to his position as our representative. Adam was our original representative, or what theologians call federal head. When he sinned, he thrust mankind into sin and alienated mankind from its creator. To put it simply, our federal head, our representative, totally, totally blew it. This would be like your attorney totally blowing it in court. You know, he just, he jacked up. He blew it big time. But Jesus came as our new representative, as the second Adam, to secure our forgiveness and to restore to us uh, unto God through his life, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. Since all was lost essentially through a man, right, Adam, it could only be restored through a man. And that is why Christ The Son of God stepped out of heaven, was born of a virgin, and became a son of man like us. This is why he took on human form. This is why he took on flesh. This is why we have what we call the incarnation. He did these things. He became a man to meet the requirements as our Savior. Okay, so Adam, a man, blew it. Jesus, a man, redeems it. So think of it like that. Lastly, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he is identifying himself with this heavenly figure from Daniel 7.13. That tells us that the Son of Man, above all else, is a heavenly figure. Not just a human being, not a representation of a human being, but divine from heaven. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he emphasizes not only his lowliness and humiliation, not only his position as our new representative, but his heavenly origin, his divinity. He is the Son of Man, right? But he is also what? Who? The Son of God, right? He is both. And he's not 50-50. He is fully man and fully God. So spend a little time trying to wrap your mind around that one. It's like the same thing as trying to wrap your mind around the eternality of God. It just goes beyond us. I can kind of see how someone could be 50-50, but how can you, if you're 100, then you're already full. How can you put another 100% on top of that? But that's exactly who Jesus is. He is the Son of Man, and He is the Son of God. And one of the struggles in the church and with theologians and with Christians is putting too much emphasis on one or the other, right? Some focus so much on the incarnation and his humanity, they act as if he's not God. And some act, you know, put so much emphasis on his godness that they kind of forget he's a man and we can't even approach him, right? But he's perfectly man and perfectly God, and he's perfectly approachable. He is. It's awesome. 
So he is the son of man and he is the son of God. And that, my friends, is who Daniel saw in his vision. The son of man, he sees the pre-incarnate Christ. He sees Jesus. Now this makes total and absolute sense because Daniel just witnessed the destruction of the fourth beast or final kingdom, right? Final earthly kingdom. He just watched all the kingdoms of the world get destroyed and the last king get destroyed. Destroyed what? I said destroyed. My son Ryan used to say that when he was a kid. He said, Dad, did he get destroyed? And he just spoke through me right now. Holy Spirit, help me. Don't get destroyed, Dad. One time he was working with tools and we had to leave the place where we were working with tools and he said, Dad, my working... My working. That's a great phrase. What, am I embarrassing you? No, it's just it's not necessary. <laughs> Stop copying Dan. He's in the children's ministry. In there. You're right. It is unnecessary. I tell you, I have ADD so bad. If a butterfly flew into here, I'd go. <laughs> we don't. Yeah, squirrel. Yeah, squirrel. Exactly. It, it's, it's really, really bad. I, I can't even carry an entire thought out. Um, that's what happens when you... Uh, are handsome. Um, that's what happens when you're old. You start getting older and you, you, don't, you don't function the way. Yeah, senile. I wasn't going to go that far. Um, yeah, just stop. Just stop. Cut the head off the snake. So what kingdom comes after that fourth and final kingdom? The, the millennial kingdom, right? The kingdom of Christ. So it makes total sense for the Son of Man, the King of that kingdom, to step up right before, right? So it makes sense. And then it says, He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. This is, is probably, I don't know, I don't want to call it the most interesting uh, phrase in, in this set of verses here, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting one. It's kind of perplexing. Daniel watched the Son of Man approach the Ancient of Days, and at this point, an angel or angels presented him before the throne. Now, I think that this particular scene seems to fit better with the ascension of Jesus Christ than with his second coming. I do. I think that it fits better with that because I started to think, okay, I'm going to study scripture now, and it took me like hours to, to kind of boil this down, but I kept trying to think of an, an, an instance in scripture where Jesus, the Son of Man, is actually presented before the Father. And then I began to ponder eternity. At what point prior to his incarnation did Jesus, the son of, you know, son of man, the son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, at what point does he, is he ever presented before the Ancient of Days? There's no point. He existed in the presence of the Ancient of Days for all eternity. And he received the same worship that the Ancient of Days received. He is keeping the, the entire uh, universe and creation running. He's preparing our salvation. These are the things that he was doing beforehand. There's no juncture. There's no moment. There's no point in history or in eternity past where Jesus is presented before the Father. Then I started to think after the ascension, is there a moment there? Well, Daniel seems to indicate that there might be one, but I don't think there's a moment then because right now we're post-ascension and right now he's seated at the right hand of God. He's our He's our king, he's our high priest, he's mediating for us, he's doing these sorts of things. He's, 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 got, he, he's, he's the Lord of all and, and these sort of titles and responsibilities that are associated with him. At what point now is he going to be presented? I can't find 
a reference in Scripture where before the incarnation or after the ascension where he's actually presented. And I think that's why it's localized to that. In fact, if you do a little research, you'll see that the Shekinah glory cloud, the Shekinah glory was actually present during his ascension. Acts 1.9 says when Jesus had said these things uh, as his disciples, he had finished teaching his disciples. He had taught them the last things that he wanted them to know. And it says, as his disciples were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That's not a cotton ball cloud. That's not a rain cloud. That's Shekinah glory. He was taken away in glory. He stepped out of glory and left it behind and he returned to glory and that cloud symbolized that. So maybe what we're seeing here is a mingling of two events, the ascension of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting, right? I think it's totally possible because we're looking at apocalyptic writing, which has to do with the last things. And so it has to be future in a way, but it can also be something that is purely prophetic and has already come to pass. But you must understand how apocalyptic writing works as well. It's not as fluid um, as historical writing or anything like that. Apocalyptic tends to bounce around. Um, you can't examine and study apocalyptic because that's exactly what the section in Daniel is. We call it apocalyptic. You can't, you can't expect it to perform the same way as historical. You can't, it's not chronalized. You can't put it in an exact perfect timeline because it bounces from this scene to this scene. How many of you have read Revelation and said, I have no idea what's going on here? Well, Revelation is truth and it tells about future events but if you try to put it in a chronology and an order, you're going to get messed up. There are some things that are in order, but there are some things that are not. And so just as a rule of thumb, what we're looking at here is a sequence of events, but they might not happen in the precise order because we're looking at apocalyptic writing. People who try to organize and line apocalyptic events up in a perfect order often miss the point and even drift away there's a great danger to drift away into apostasy. Uh, Harold Camping, how many of you have heard of him? He's not named after a guy who liked to go camping. His name is literally Camping. Harold Camping, he was a guy who kept setting dates for the return of Jesus. He would literally study scripture and, and he tried to establish these timelines and here's when this is going to happen and, and here's where this beast and here's where this is going to go down and boom, boom, boom. And he, he you know, systematized these things and laid out a total chronology and it at the end of the day, he ended up with dates where Jesus would return. And every time Jesus didn't show up on one of the dates that he set, he set a new date. <laughs> just bump that out another six years. He just kept doing that over and over. Until his dying day, he was literally he was like, I'm dying, I'm going to go uh, October 5th. You know, I mean, he was literally, it's all he did. I, it, literally, you talk about missing the forest for the trees. He spent all of his time trying to put these things in an exact chronology when you missed the point. And the point is, is that we win because Jesus wins, right? That's the point. He did these things for years, and the worst part is that camping had a lot of followers, lemmings who ran off those cliffs with him. Apocalyptic literature, again, as a rule of thumb, can bounce around. So be careful not to get sucked into the trap of trying to establish a perfect timeline for its events. I don't know, that was like a safety notice in the middle of the sermon. And I tell you, people get spun out on this stuff big time. They really do. I don't because I'm like, I got other things to focus on. I know it's all going to go down. That's all I need to know. 
And I need to be ready for Jesus when he comes back, right? Amen? Uh, let's look at 14. So we have those phrases. We've analyzed them. Now let's look at 14. This is interesting as well. So he's, been, he's come before the Ancient of Days. And now it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I don't know about you, but to me, that's like the best news ever. That, that, that line, verse 14, brings me so much encouragement. It, it makes me and causes me to, to want to be bold for Jesus because I, I know how things are going to roll out in the future. I know what's coming. I know what to expect. I might not see it in my lifetime. I might see it when I'm in glory with him. That's probably how he's going to roll it out, but that's cool. But it's just such an encouragement to me to see how and what happens here. So the Ancient of Days presents to the Son of Man three things is what we see in this nice little verse. Let's look at each of them. First, dominion. Dominion. What a cool word, right? Sounds like a name of a heavy metal band from the 80s. We're Dominion, right? I love that word. I think there used to be a church on Kansas called Dominion. I, they're not there anymore, so maybe they didn't have Dominion. Um, I don't know where they went. Dominion. Dominion. I love that word, Dominion. Okay? Dominion had been given to Adam, but when he sinned, he essentially lost it. Dominion had been given to the four kingdoms, but we saw the Ancient of Days remove it from them. Now we see God giving dominion to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who will never lose it because it is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. What is dominion? Dominion is power. Dominion is rule. Dominion has to do with sovereignty. Okay, so that's what it means. And I think that's probably why I like the word so much. So we see it, you know, Adam lost it. Our federal head, he lost it. All the kingdoms of earth are given some level of dominion. They have to rule and do these things. But it's stripped from them. And now the dominion that they all had, and even the highest level of it now, is now given to the Son of Man. That's what we're seeing. The second thing that we see is glory, glory. Glory had been given to Adam. In fact, his purpose was to display God's glory to the world, right? He was an image bearer. He was created in the very image of God. And his sole purpose was to glorify God, to admit God's glory, to make God's glory known to the rest of creation. He was given glory for the purpose of bringing glory to God. In fact, that is why God gives any glory to any created being at all. It is to glorify Him and to show that He is the one who is truly glorious. Glory comes from Him. It's not, uh, it doesn't come from within us. It's not something that's natural for us. It's given. It's given as a, as a gift in a sense to bear the glory of God. But when he sinned, when Adam sinned, he, became, he began to bear the image of something quite different, didn't he? The image of fallen man, a sinner. The image of the devil, the one who, the serpent who whom uh, distracted him and deceived him. And fallen man and the devil are not 
glorious in any sense of the word at all, right? Glory had been given to the kingdoms of earth, but we saw the ancient of days strip that glory from them. Glory in their ability to, um, in their size of their kingdoms and in the wealth of their kingdoms, glory is represented in those things. But we see the ancient of days totally strip that glory from, from everyone and everything in the world, essentially. Now we see God giving this glory to the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, right? It's awesome. It's awesome. Thirdly, we see a kingdom. Kingdoms have been established on earth for the purposes of exercising dominion. That's power and um, power and uh, sovereignty in a sense. So they're given for that purpose of exercising and executing dominion on God's behalf. But primarily, they're established for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And that's a difficult one for us to get our minds around because we don't see the kingdoms of earth glorifying God. Some of them certainly think they are, including this one. But I don't know, when you have this, uh, the things that are happening in our country, I, it's hard to imagine that the country is, or the, the nation, the kingdom, if you will, of the United States is actually bringing him glory. But they do exist for that purpose. They are established to exercise dominion. They are established to bring God glory. And yet all have failed to do so. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? All people, and if it's all people, then it's all kingdoms. And yet God's plan and solution has always been to remove the kingdoms of earth with their kings and establish a kingdom that will never fail or be brought to ruin. So every kingdom that's ever existed and will exist is there to point to the final kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And maybe that's the second to last kingdom if you think about it because you have the eternal kingdom, but I don't think there's any sort of pause in the millennial kingdom. It just kind of transitions so smoothly. It's not like it comes to an end. Now we have the eternal. The millennial just becomes the eternal, and there are some new things that happen, a new heavens and earth and Jerusalem and those things. But we don't want to think of Jesus' kingdom as having an end because the scripture here says that it doesn't. But God's plan has always been to take the kingdoms of earth, to use them and to, to employ them for dominion and to bring him glory, but ultimately to point to the last and greatest kingdom of them all, the one that has true dominion, the one that has true glory. We have seen the ancient of days, right, in the previous section, destroy the four kingdoms. And now we see him handing over this perfect kingdom, this new kingdom to the Son of Man. So you have total replacement, which is playing out here. You have some that have been removed and, and destroyed and eliminated, and you have all of it going to the Son of Man in terms of dominion, glory, and kingdom. That's what we're studying, folks. That's why I get so pumped up about this verse. It's incredible. And there's some details here. This kingdom will be multi-ethnic, It'll be very diverse. Why? Because it'll have peoples, nations, and languages. That's the way to interpret that. The church and the future kingdom is filled with people from all sorts of different backgrounds. It's not just, you know, Anglo-Saxons. Do we even use, is that like a term from like Clash of Clans or something now, right? It's, it's not just, you know, not, it's not just white folk, you know. It's not just this. It's, it's folks from every nation and every people group and every tribe and tongue. And that's why 
I think it's totally incompatible in every instance, but racism is totally incompatible with Christianity. It, what blows my mind is the idea of Southern Christians, you know, not long ago, totally berating and, and annihilating black folks and claiming to love Christ in the midst of this. Do they not understand that the kingdom of Christ includes folks from every tribe and tongue? There's, there's no room at all for racism in the Christian faith. It just, it's, it's totally incompatible. Our, the kingdom is going to have... What are you going to do, be a racist in the kingdom? I can't believe they let those folks in here. You know what will happen now. You know, I'm having a hard time believing they let you in. Just incompatible. It makes no sense. It'll be a multi-ethnic, diverse kingdom with peoples, nations, and languages. And we see a picture of that in the church today, right? Because the church has folks from every tribe and tongue, if you will. They will be unified. These people, man, they have something in common. They will be unified in the kingdom. They will be unified in devotion. They will be, as it says, committed to serving the Son of Man. Okay, the king, right? The Son of Man is the king. So, so you don't have the 80-20 rule in the kingdom of Christ like you do in the church today where 80% you know, don't do much and the 20% do all the giving and serving and all that. That's a problem that paralyzes, basically. It seemingly paralyzes the church today, definitely plagues the church. You don't have that problem in the coming kingdom. Sometimes I just pray for the kingdom to come to put that in end, to an end because I want to see every child of God serving the Lord, using their time, talent, and treasure for His glory. Because I'll tell you what, you're missing out if you're not doing that. You are missing out. That is a direct impact on you and your faith and your growth. One of the greatest things you can do as a child of God is serve the king. It is. But you don't have that 80-20 rule playing out in this king. No, 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 no. Everyone, it says, is serving the Son of Man, their king. It also says it shall not be destroyed. In other words, it will not be judged by the ancient of days and brought to ruin like the four kingdoms that we're seeing in the text, the four beasts. It's not going to be subjected to that. It's not going to be conquered by some other kingdom. There are no other kingdoms. There's only uh, residue of the prior kingdoms in the people that you know, are associated with Greece and those things. They're there and they're part of this kingdom. But this kingdom's not going to be conquered it's not going to be overcome. It's, it's not going to ever end. It's not going to be judged by the ancient of days. Doesn't that get you excited, though, to think that there's something that's coming that is, that is absolutely perfect in every way that will be unimpeded and unaffected by what's playing out? It won't be like the kingdoms of earth. It won't. I like how R.C. Sproul summarized this section. I've always liked him as a theologian. Uh, he said this. He said, the dominion of the earth is taken from the beasts. I love that. It's just snatched and taken away from them and given to one like the son or one like a son of man. This one becomes Lord of all and is given to reign over all peoples, nations, and languages in a kingdom that will never end. Man, what a great summary. Now, here's the deal. Have you read Ephesians 1, 20 through 21 ever or maybe lately? We studied that book together. Some of you were with us then at the old building. Um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a good time. I, I really enjoyed that study. But if you read that text, if you read, I, I suggest reading all of Ephesians. I love chapter 1. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. So is chapter 2, so is chapter 3, so is chapter 4. But if you read... Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, and I'm going to do it 
I want, I want to read to you what it says and look at the parallels. It's incredible. It says this. Uh, it doesn't say the Father, but we know that the author is speaking of the Father, so I put that in bars. But the Father seated him, speaking of the Son of Man, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Isn't that an awesome text? Did the parallels pop into your mind with what we're looking at at Daniel? See, this text is associated with the ascension. These are the things that took place when Jesus ascended back up into heaven. I think it shows that some of the things in Daniel 7, 13 through 14 may have already come to pass. At the ascension, the Son of Man was presented before the Ancient of Days. He was given dominion, right? That's power and authority. And He was made Lord over all. And that's an interesting thing if you think about it. Hasn't He always been Lord? The God-man, no, because Jesus became man. So that, that title is ascribed to both, the God-man. So he was made Lord of all over all after he completed his work, and then he was seated at the right hand of God. So at that point, he receives this, I don't know if you want to call it a reward, where he is over all of creation. It's pretty awesome. As far as his kingdom is concerned... As far as the kingdom of Christ is concerned, it has already been initiated, meaning that it's not just something to come. It has come in a sense, right? What did Jesus preach? Believe the gospel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't say it's coming. He says it's here now. Why? Because I'm here. I'm the king. So his kingdom, he's already been presented. His, he's already been given lordship overall in the dominion and power. His kingdom has already been initiated. It basically began with his birth. As far as his people are concerned, the people of his kingdom, right? He has already begun to reign over them as he reigns over his church. Does that mean that he doesn't reign over all? He does, but he has kingdom people that he reigns over specifically, and that's what we're looking at. The numbers in his kingdom, in the church, will continue to grow as men, women, and children from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language are added through the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. So I think Ephesians 1, 20 through 21 shows us that some of these things in Daniel have already taken place. The parts that are yet to come are his coming on the clouds, his return, and the physical establishment of his kingdom on earth. Right now, his kingdom has been established in a spiritual sense. It's the church. It, the church represents it in a spiritual sense. Every, and it's the universal church. Every person who has bowed the knee to Jesus, believes in Jesus, he's their Lord and Savior. He is a, that person, he or she represents a manifestation of that coming kingdom. That Christian does. So some of these things have come to pass, but the physical establishment of his kingdom, we haven't seen that yet, right? He hasn't come down and defeated everyone and subdued the nations and established his throne in Jerusalem or any of that. We've got to see all of that. He's got to take the throne of David. There's things that have to happen yet. And that's the apocalyptic facet to Daniel. Coming on the clouds in glory and, and setting up that physical kingdom, those are the things that we're waiting for. Those are the apocalyptic parts. Application. Not closing. Don't get confused. You're thinking, ooh, we're almost out of here. 
not by a long shot. Here's, here's because you take this text, you look at this text, and, and you have to say to yourself, okay, so, so what does that mean for me right now? What's the practical implication of it? Well, first of all, I think you could stop right there and just say amen and walk out of here because you know something much better is coming, right? Do you really need more than that? Yeah, guys like me do. So here's how I want to apply it. The kingdom of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ, is both here and yet to come, right? I've explained that. The church represents the presence of His kingdom on earth right now. But when the rapture occurs, the church age will close and the kingdom age will begin. Now, I have two exhortations for you. Number one, and here's where the rubber meets the road. If you are a believer, if you believe in Jesus, He's your Lord and Savior. He's it. You're banking on Him and Him alone. That's it. It's all Jesus or all nothing, right? He's it. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your King. If that is you, you are called to be a kingdom person right now. Right now. Right now. This isn't something that's deferred. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians that think, okay, I'll start living as a kingdom person when the king comes. If that's your mentality, you're probably not a kingdom person. There, are, there is so much instruction in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul, teaching how to live as a kingdom person. Christian living, a.k.a., is synonymous with kingdom person. And sadly, there are some that think that, well, you know what, he's coming. I love him. He's coming, and when he comes, then I'll begin to live as a kingdom person. No, 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 no. Christ is our Lord. Christ is our King. And he commands that we live as kingdom people today. It's not something we defer. It's not something we delay. We do it now. And here are some ways that you can do that. Okay, here's where it gets real practical. First, be holy because God is holy. 1 Peter 1.16. Be holy because God is holy. God has made you holy in that he has set you apart for himself. You belong to him. You don't belong to this world. You belong to him. And you are to live in such a way that shows that holiness, that you don't belong that you don't fit. This is one of the great challenges of all of us, right? Is to be holy. We might be holy positionally with God. It's a once and done thing. We're set apart. We belong to Him. But living out that holiness, that's the great challenge. But we're no less called to do it. We're no less called to do it. Right? So be holy as God is holy. Don't say to yourself, I have Jesus and I have grace, so it's okay to be unholy. It's okay to participate in things that aren't glorifying to God, that are destructive for me and for others. No, 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 no. That's not the right attitude. The right attitude is, I want to be holy, and when I'm not, I don't like it. And I repent, and I confess, and I take, yes, I took five steps back, but I, now I'm going to take six forward. It's... it's a daily fight. It's not, okay, I'm holy, I'm good, and now I don't have to think about that anymore. It is a constant struggle. It is a constant fight. It is warfare. Claim that holiness 
and, and determine yourself every day to walk in it. I know it isn't easy, but we have the Holy Spirit. Secondly, seek first his kingdom or the kingdom and do righteousness. Matthew 6, 33. This is one of the great struggles as well. We tend to seek after our own needs, wants, and desires or those of others. We tend to seek after the wrong kingdom, this world and the concerns of this world. You know, this, this text, Matthew 6, it, it's all framed within this great episode of anxiety and worry and concern that's coming forth from the disciples who have begun to now go out and do ministry with Jesus. And the first thing that comes to mind to them as they're walking out with nothing but a tunic, pair of flip-flops, what would come to mind if you went out and Jesus said, we're going to be out for a while, what would you say? Um, where are we going to eat? What are we going to do when, when, you know, these tunics get stinky? We need to get some new tunics. We need, we need downy. We need to do the wash, as Bruce would say. He doesn't say wash, he says wash. <laughs> would you not be concerned about, so let me get, to, yeah, I definitely want to go with you, Jesus, but um, I got to bury my father. I got to get some money together and get that FPU going. I got to get that broader safety uh, spending, you know, broader uh, money account going so I can do this. I got to have some money for that. I got to do, the, you know, the concerns, right? Of, of whatever it would take to accomplish it, those things come. Do we not live in a mode constantly of concerning ourselves about where the next dollar might come from? Sometimes we do that. Some of us are working, some aren't, and you're worried about that now. This, this particular text is framed within that anxiety. What will we eat? Have you not noticed the birds of the air? How your Father in heaven feeds them? Have you not noticed the lilies of the field and how arrayed in beauty they are. You know, it, Jesus is saying, look, guys, here's the bottom line. You need to seek first my kingdom. You need to seek righteousness, and then all of these things will fall into place. And what we do is we enrapture ourselves with the things and the concerns, and then things never fall into place, do they? They don't. Does, has anxiousness or worry ever added any money to your bank account? Are you kidding me? You're taking years off your life. Maybe that's your express ticket to get to Jesus. I'll just worry myself into his presence. Well, you're going to have an artery explode one of these days if you keep doing that. You see, our problem is, is that we need to flip the way we think. We're constantly seeking personal interest, self-glory, or if we're people pleasers, what everyone else wants. We're constantly racked with anxiety and worry and all of these things because we're not seeking what we ought to be seeking, and that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that is righteousness. And what righteousness means here is do what is right before your Father. And what is not right is to sit there and spin your wheels in anxiousness. That's not adding anything to your life but more and more stress. And you know what? I think worry and fear are offensive to our Father because they are the antithesis of faith. That's one way. Those are two ways so far that you can live as a kingdom person. Be holy and seek the kingdom. Seek the king and his kingdom and do righteousness. Thirdly, you can be a living sacrifice. 
Romans 12, 1. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to bear a cross. You're going to have to carry your cross. You can't be living for yourself and living for Jesus at the same time. It's either or. And you've got to learn, and I've got to learn how to lay down my life more often, more frequently, in particular areas of my life that seem to evade his sovereign rule, even though they don't. But they, I certainly take some of those areas, and you can't see this one. Oh, he sees it. We have to learn. Kingdom people live as a sacrifice. And that, it says in that text, is true worship. It's true worship. When you want something, and you say, in order for me to get that, I won't be able to tithe. And then you say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to satisfy my flesh. I need to give to the Lord. You just lived as a sacrifice. It happens in a million ways. Whenever something arises or where you can exalt yourself or somebody else, and you say, no, I'm going to exalt, the, I'm going to exalt Christ. I'm going to exalt the King. You're living as a sacrifice. When you deny self, you're living as a sacrifice. Is that hard? Yeah. Being holy, seeking first the kingdom, and living as a sacrifice, those three things. Being a kingdom person ain't easy, man. It ain't easy. Four, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before God. Micah 6, 8. Do justice. Be a just person. Don't be a person who engages in shenanigans in foolery, in things that aren't just, things that are unjust. Be kind. Kingdom people are kind. They're not hard, you know? Boy, he's just got some edges that the Lord needs to work on. Well, that may be true, but does he understand that he is to do justice and love kindness, to pursue kindness, which is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way, Walking humbly before God. This is one of the number one things. That we don't walk in pride, in self-exaltation. Do justice, love kindness, be a kind person. That's a kingdom person. Walk humbly before God. What does God do with the prideful? He, yeah, and he, he is opposed to them, right? But what does he do with the humble? He exalts them. He exalts them. So guess what? Self-exaltation is deadly. It leads to death. It leads to hell. But when you humble yourself and walk in humility, you get exalted the right way, the way that is truly satisfying because God himself is doing it and saying, here is my child. He lifts us up. Let's be lifted up by him rather than by our own, our own hands, Right? Five, walk in love. Ephesians 5, 2. It's amazing that right after that it talks about marriages and relationships with kids and children, our children and stuff like that. Walk in love. Some of us claim to walk in love, try to claim that, and yet some of the things that we post on Facebook or say to others aren't very loving. We tend to not be loving 
towards those that we disagree with. Maybe it's their lifestyle or, or some of these things. You know what? If you walk in love, if you have a disposition of love, I think that you're going to see people differently. You're not going to see this person as this political party or this lifestyle that kind of blows your mind or this or that. You're going to see, here's what I've been trying to teach myself. It's so hard. I want to see people as potential disciples of Jesus Christ rather than as that liberal, that gay person. We're never going to get anywhere with the gay community if we keep seeing them as the gay community. We need to see them as image bearers with great potential to be a worshiper. It's, it's time to walk away from the stigmas and the stereotypes and the hate. We need to see Muslims. Actually, if a Muslim was turned to Christ, they'd probably be 10 times the worshiper that we are because of the kind of devotion they put into their religion. Why can't we pray for them in that way instead of saying, drop a bunker buster on them? This might be the hardest one of them all, walking in love. I don't think it's natural for us. It is natural for us to walk in the... the fabricated loves that exist in this world that aren't loves. Love is code for tolerance. And we like to walk in accordance with those versions of love. But walking in agape, really the love of God, selfless, sacrificing love, is very, very hard, but we must start doing that. That's what kingdom people do. Another one, do good deeds. James 2.17. Look, we don't do good deeds to try to get ourselves saved or to try to earn favor with God. If you're a child of God, you have salvation. It came from Him, not from what you've been doing or ever did or ever even thought about. Your good deeds are the product and result of the grace of God and salvation of God. We don't do to get something from God. We do because we have gotten something from God. And James 2.17 talks about this in a way that is truly frightening. Faith without good deeds is not faith at all. It's actually dead. Because true saving faith produces good deeds. Acts of kindness, acts of generosity, acts of charity, helping someone out, being there from someone. Define these good deeds in the way that you want. Actually, no, don't define them in the way that you want because you'll start justifying some of the things that really aren't good deeds. Look to the scriptures to find out what they are. And some of them are listed here, right? Be kind, do justice. Those things are, those are good deeds if you execute, exercise those sorts of things. But do good deeds. Do good deeds. <clears throat> it's like that famous Luther quote I love, right? I quote it here all the time. And, and many people try to say that Luther didn't understand the grace of God in deeds. He didn't understand how those things work together, and he just flat out denied books like James. Not true. What Luther said was, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by good deeds. 
If you are a person who says, I, I know I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but you don't have good deeds, maybe you're lying to yourself. They should come naturally for you. Not at all times. You're not going to be like Superman flying around saving everyone. But when, when a moment arises and the Holy Spirit prompts you and leads you, you obey him and do something for someone, something that's helpful. Another one, submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. Is this hard? Man, especially when you've got people around you that have jacked you up wronged you, blown you out, you want to submit a hammer to them, may I submit this claw-tooth hammer to your face? You don't want to submit yourself to them in humility, but isn't it the kindness of the Lord that leads one to repentance? Why don't you flip the script and submit and be humble before your accuser, or the one who's harmed you, and see what happens. Maybe it'll put them hot coals on his head. That's what it says in Scripture. But submission to one another doesn't just have to do with people who have wronged us. It has to do with church authority, leadership. It has to do with governmental authority. Kind of hard to imagine yourself submitting to some of the government here in this state with the crazy things they're passing. I'm certainly not interested in submitting to a 12-cent gas tax that just came out. But I need gas. So I'll end up doing it unless somebody in here creates some new way to drive around. It's just not easy. But submission to one another, what does submission to one another show? It shows submission to God. God calls us and commands us to submit to Him. How do we model that? By submitting to one another. By to our spouses, by to our friends, by to our church staff, by to our workers, uh, co-workers and bosses and government authorities. It's so important that we begin to submit. That's what kingdom people do. Be at peace with others, Romans 12, 18. Seek peace in all instances, in all, in all occasions, no matter what's happening. Seek to live in peace with one another is what Scripture commands. Be a peace lover. Blessed are the peace lovers, right? Blessed are those who seek peace is one of the Beatitudes. Be someone who seeks peace, that you're not a strife person and, and a, a revenge person and a, a harsh word person and, you know, and all of these things. Seek peace. So much of these things and these experiences, bad ones, we bring upon ourselves because we're not, you know, we're quick to speak and we should be slow to speak and quick to listen, right? We should flip them. But seek peace. Two more. Make disciples. It's kind of a no-brainer for the Christian, although it has to be reiterated constantly because I tend to forget that I'm supposed to be making disciples. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. How do we make disciples? By proclaiming the gospel, by teaching those who come to church and those who are in our circles and even those on the outside to a degree. We Teach them to obey all that Christ commanded, whether that be the gospel right up front or the implications of the gospel over time. Make disciples. That is an explicit command. It's not like evangelism. I'm an evangelist. He's this and he's that. You know how we say that about certain people that work in the church. All of us are to be evangelists in a, in a way. You might not do it the same way that Fred over here does it or Jim or whatever, but... You are to be an evangelist. You are to be making disciples, firstly, in your home, with your children, in your neighborhoods, wherever. Make disciples. And then last, 
Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 We should be prayerful people. Praying all the time. Offering up all sorts of supplications. And primarily giving thanks over and over and over. This is what we should be doing. Those are ten things that kingdom people do. Almost there. That was the first part. Number two. And here's where it plays right off of the last one. Pray for the Son of Man to return. Right? First one was live as a kingdom person. Now, pray for the Son of Man to return. I was challenged by that realization. Paul's, and here's the deal. Here's what's really interesting. Paul's exhortation to pray without ceasing, right? In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, immediately follows his exhortation to be ready for the return of Christ. That's in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Was Paul instructing the church to pray continuously for the return of Christ? It's very possible. It's very possible. Here's my question. Really my last part. How often do we pray for the Lord to return? Are we busy praying for this health need or this financial problem or, or this or that or the other? How often do we actually pray for Jesus to come back? Occasionally? Rarely? Never? It's not something that I pray for very often. I'm asked to pray for a lot of stuff, and I tend to pray for what I'm asked to pray for. And when it comes to me, it's usually not that. Let me ask you this. Why would we not pray for this? Why would we not commit ourselves to continuously, continually praying for the return of the Son of Man? Why would we not do that? Do we not realize how much of a mess this world is? Last week, civilians were gassed to death in Syria. Babies! Anyone see the imagery on TV? Horrifying! There was a subway bombing in, I think, in Moscow where people were killed. These are two things that were reported. How many things that actually happened throughout the world that weren't reported? The world is a mess. Do we not realize that the ultimate solution to the world's problems is the return of the Son of Man. He is the stone who will bring an end to these wicked kingdoms and the carnage that they are causing. The Apostle John prayed for his return. In Revelation 22.20, he wrote, Come, Lord Jesus, come! Why don't we do that? We should make that phrase our continuous prayer, our heart cry. And we won't do that until we begin to realize what the implications of Jesus' return actually are. These kingdoms that are committing this carnage, including our own, on countless babies who are being aborted, all of it will be brought to destruction. And you know what? Every tear will be wiped away. Some of you right now are struggling so hard with your own body and sickness. Some of you are struggling with that of a loved one whom has been in the hospital 
for weeks, many weeks maybe. I don't know. I'm not trying to be prophetic. I know what's going on with some of you. And you are saying, gosh, these doctors can't figure out what's going on. We need to be sensitive here, though, because if Jesus returns, that means that many will be swept up. But there's a promise in Scripture that says that none unto whom the Father has given to the Son shall be lost. There is not one Christian who will be lost, one future Christian. God will bring his entire church home and together and present it to Jesus. So we can pray for an expedited return because we know, we know that none of God's people will be lost. Many will be lost. But it's not that they'll be lost. They're already lost. They're not even going to flinch. The lostness that they're experiencing right now is something that they enjoy because they hate God. I don't rejoice in the destruction of sinners. None of us are to ever do that. He talks about it in Ezekiel. But I know that if he comes back, things will be set right. Things will be set right. And as we wait, as we pray, and as we wait patiently for our Lord to return, we should live as kingdom people and bring Him, bring the Son of Man, bring God much praise, much honor, and much glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.